Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the independent political podcast. You'll note we have started with a new set of adjectives there, um, taking a, a little bit of a, a brand detour into some some new spaces. We cover more international um, politics, but we will be talking about some New Zealand politics early this morning. I'm joined by my co-host Bronco. How's it going over there uh, in Chicago? Uh, good. Uh, very different COVID situation here than, than from what uh, all of you New Zealand are experiencing over here. Uh, uh, the situation is much worse. There's like a thousand something people, 1,500 people dying a day over the last week uh, across the entire country. Um, and there's a lot of cases, but, you know, people here, it's just sort of, uh, everyone's just masking um chicago has a mask mandate for indoors so you 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 have to except hilariously unless you're eating or drinking in which case the rules of um airborne transmission of disease uh cease to exist and apply yeah yeah i've heard uh, that um the virus is really compassionate in that way yeah yeah that's right and that was just you know hey listen this person's having dinner now let's leave them be we'll come back when they're finished and then we can uh keep keep uh spreading through the country yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a different one. So th- in some ways, there's more freedom uh, because there is summer, so people are just masked, but they're still going out and doing things, you know, singing karaoke and everything. Um, now the big question is, what is that going to look like over winter when the weather gets significantly colder and when there aren't outdoor spaces for people to party in anymore? Yeah, we, you know, there's a lot of this discussion um, kind of aimed at New Zealand around our lack of freedoms of our authoritarian state. Um, we, we are seeing, and as everyone um, listening from New Zealand will know, we are seeing our cases rapidly decline um, with this hopefully short lockdown um, that we're undertaking. It, I, I think it is important to, to note that it is a short-term decrease in freedoms. Um, and Because if we don't grapple with that and we don't, we're not upfront about that um, and about the fact that we're, doing it for a specific outcome, which is our community not having multiple deaths. Um, it does make it a lot harder for us to be honest about um, our approach to the rest of the world, which isn't doing this. And we've just seen in Australia just some horrific narratives um, coming out. We had the New South Wales Premier saying, fuck, what did she say? Death is a horrible thing. Um, but I'm stopping 8 million people from deciding what they do with their free time. And Scott Morrison just came out and said, we're we're opening up. You can do things like go and get a meal um, or go to church or go to a funeral, Um, which is just... You can go uh, to many funerals. Uh, Yeah, just There'll be no shortage of them. Both of them just... Yeah, so yeah, we're, we're pretty happy to be locking down at the moment. Um, I, I think a lot of people who have experienced that cycle here, like you were here for, for some of um, the time when we weren't really in lockdown, uh, Bronco, mm. um, understand. And it was horrible. It was horrible. <laughs> Just a, a police state where I was surveyed, tracked, controlled, told what to do, what to think. It, yeah. was, uh, it was one of the worst times of my life. I was very glad to come back to... Um, to a place where uh, uh, I was under threat from both the deadly virus and wildfires. Uh, <laughs> it was a real relief. But yeah, um, 
I, I think people are, are managing it. People have said that this lockdown is harder in some ways. Um, mm. But yeah, kind of everyone's in it together. Uh, we talked about that on our previous cast, just a sense of community around this. Um, mm. And the feeling that there's a coordinated response. And I think mm. that's really helped. Um, yeah. Well, I think there's like a misconception. Uh, I, I would argue kind of a willful misconception among pundits in the United States and, and similar countries where it's like, oh, like liberal people or left-leaning people or, um, you know, these countries like New Zealand, they love lockdowns. Like, look at all how, how, how like, how much people love these, these uh, things where everyone has to stay inside for uh, weeks and, and they can't do anything. It's like, the thing is, no one likes lockdowns. People aren't doing it in New Zealand and, and Australia and countries like Vietnam. They're not doing them because it's like enjoyable to uh, have cabin fever uh, for, for, you know, two to, to, to four weeks or even longer. And they're doing it in spite of this. It's, it's a yeah. shared sacrifice. Um, and so, and, and, you know, the other thing that gets uh, left out, I mean, you know, a lot of people in the United States, including some commentators on the left, have, have really taken to kind of basically adopting the, kind of Republican talking points of the early uh, pandemic, where it's just like, well, yeah, what is death? Uh, in, in some ways, do we ever die or do we, do we merely, is, is death just another adventure, just, uh, you know, another form of existence, perhaps a better one? Uh, you know, the, these kinds of metaphysical arguments. Um, and I think what people don't realize is that even if the New Zealand government was going to say, you know what, uh, we can't do this anymore and we're just going to have to accept some people are going to die. Um, even if that was their attitude, the reason why they're doing this is because, the, and the government has said this, and it's it's patently obvious even if they hadn't, that the New Zealand health sector, um, like so many other countries, but New Zealand uh, in particular, uh, is its health sector would, would absolutely collapse if mm -hmm. COVID, uh, if Delta was allowed to, to run riot. I mean, uh, we have pretty strong data. Obviously, it's more contagious. There's, there's enough data, I think, suggesting at this point that it is actually more dangerous. It's um, cutting through infected. high numbers of vaccines in both the UK and the US. Yeah, that's right. You know? uh, Iceland, uh, which had, as of a few weeks ago, uh, uh, vaccinated about 95% of its adult population, um, they had the worst caseload uh, of their entire pandemic. Yeah. It's not that people were dying. That's the thing. Because they were vaccinated people, there, there weren't people going to hospital and, and, and dying on mass. So that's the important thing. But if you don't have people vaccinated, and New Zealand's nowhere near that, that 95% mm -hmm. total of its adult population, you would, you would see massive death. I mean, think about how quickly just in New Zealand, those numbers went from yeah, one, one to case to 800. -ish. Yeah, crazy. Um, and um, importantly as well, and I think this is something I often left out is the extent to which this affects our vulnerable communities first and foremost. And you're seeing that mm. in Auckland at the moment. So Auckland for, for our international listeners is the city most affected uh, by this particular outbreak and has been the city most affected um, over the course of this pandemic. And mm. it's our Pacific community that's really suffering for this. Um, and if we hadn't locked down, it would have been a lot worse. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Pacifica people and, and, and elderly people too. The health I mean, system already know. fails them. Um, exactly, exactly. And yeah. I mean, and, it, and the thing is that the people, because 
I think there's this really ugly, selfish attitude, which is, you know what? I if you if you're not vaccinated, as long as I'm fine, then that's all that matters. Yeah, disgusting. Um, and so, as long as I don't get COVID, that doesn't matter. Now, I think that's yeah, exactly deplorable, but that's that's some people's view. But the thing is that it's not just because you're vaccinated or or you think you're going to be fine from catching the virus uh, because you're young and, and fit or whatever. Um, that does not actually mean that you will be unaffected because if the healthcare system is overloaded um, and, and collapses, if something happens to you, if you do get any sort of other illness, whatever that may be, which happens in life, people get sick, uh, often unexpectedly, uh, then you may not be able to get the treatment that you need. Um, and you could suffer and you could even die. Um, that, that is certainly what has happened in, in parts of the world that have seen their health care was uh, overloaded, uh, where doctors start having to make choices about, do I pull, uh, do, I, do I just pull this person off, uh, you know, a ventilator or what have you and, and let them go so I can treat this other person? Or do I say no to this person, yeah. have them suffer for a while? And then you get into like these like horrible eugenics arguments, right? Um, and we've seen that in both the UK and the US with uh, people with disabilities or other underlying health conditions, um, basically having DNR orders um, or mm. the medical staff choosing not to put these people on ventilators because uh, their outcomes are worse, which is, yeah. one, a horrific thing to do to our health staff to, to force those kind of um, KPIs on them, essentially. Um, mm. And two, just like an awful societal load um, towards, mm. again, our, our most vulnerable groups. But I don't want to be um, litigating this further um, at this point, because well, we could talk about this for another whole cast, right? Thankfully, New Zealanders, I think, agree on this and actually are pretty reasonable and understand why, why we're, you know, not, not me right now, but why Kiwis are having to hunker down for these few weeks. So I think that's, that's good. Yeah. We'll be joined, um, just as a, a preamble, we'll be joined by Luke Savage later in the cast to talk about the Canadian election. Um, but before we do that, we wanted to talk quickly about the events of a couple of days ago. Um, so as I said, Auckland is the uh, major city affected by this current outbreak in New Zealand. Um, we're the only city now that's in what we call a level four lockdown. So that's uh, the harshest measures. Um, and on Friday, we also I guess, suffered um, in, in West Auckland, which is uh, incidentally where I, I grew up, um, what is being called a terrorist attack um, in a mall, um, in a supermarket, where a, a man got hold of a, a knife uh, from within the supermarket um, and started stabbing people. Uh, now, a whole bunch of information has come out since. Uh, there's immediately a, a political stand-up by the Prime Minister. Uh, this person had been surveilled since 2016, had been under 24-hour, 24-hour, seven-day-a-week surveillance by the police um, because of their, what, what they say, their ideological beliefs being related to ISIS. The perpetrator has been called a ISIS-inspired lone wolf. Uh, and the fact that he was surveilled um, and was under constant surveillance means within 60 seconds of this attack occurring, um, he was shot and killed. Now, Branko, I know uh, that you've got some reasonably strong feelings, maybe some what, what people are probably going to call contrarian statements 
about this. Uh, I, I happen to think that you're probably correct. Um, I, I want to kind of catch right at the outset the fact that people are going to say that, um, and, and you know, they've already said um, it's not the time to to litigate these things, yada yada. Um, personally, I, you know, I, I wish we could just talk about um, giving support to the victims and, and their families and the community and, and, and looking forward. But we've also seen the media immediately. Um, and I, I've, you know, I've talked about this on social, on my Twitter account a little bit, immediately start calling um, or implying we should have tougher uh, surveillance terrorist, whatever laws. Just this morning, it's come out that the government was trying to work to remove this person's refugee status. Um, there's a lot of discussion around being able to strip citizenship. Uh, I think all of the people um, involved with the cast believe that, that these are very dangerous directions to go um, and that a lot of the rhetoric happening um, around immediately calling this terrorism for the purposes of security legislation uh, is dangerous. I, mean, I think our first takeaway from this uh, incident should be that you know, violent crime is a serious thing and a, and a terrible thing. It, it, it's never pleasant. It does happen uh, with, with shocking regularity in our lives. Um, um, I don't know if it's more so than, than used to happen in, in human history, but uh, you know, I, I think, of course, one of our goals should be to create a society where we are free of uh, violent crime. Um, and that means going after and, and tackling those conditions that lead to that kind of thing, whatever that may be, whether it's mental health issues, as um, seems to be uh, partly the case in this incident, or whether it's 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 poverty and and, and sort of uh, a feeling of, of helplessness and, and, and a drug addiction and, and every other kind of uh, modern uh, blight on existence. So of course, you know, I think this is another reminder that that these things do exist in our society and uh, they're they're not good. There are you know we we have to find some ways to reduce them. Now I think you know as always with crime. Um, although uh, we think of uh, punitive solutions as the main thing that, that stops it, you know, we've, we also know that, that study after study, evidence always shows that that's actually not really how you stop crime, that actually tougher punishments and all this kind of thing don't tend to do it. That's where our society jumps to first, but it's not the most effective way to stop this stuff from happening. Um, so I think that's that's number one. What we should take away from this. Number two, yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the the media have not really reported this responsibly. Um, I understand why the label of terrorism is being affixed here because this guy had uh, ISIS material. He was on a watch list. Apparently, he had said things or you know showed intent to to plan uh, some sort of attack. Um, you know, ultimately, it's hard to know what exactly his motivation was until we get more uh, of an idea. Um, you know, there's a very fine line with these lone wolf attackers, as they're called. There's a very fine line between um, terrorism, which what that means is it's violence for political purposes. You're trying to create some sort of change in the system. You're trying to get some sort of policy or, or political direction happening uh, by using violence um, so there's a very fine line between the kind of lone wolf terrorism and just uh, mental illness, 
um, which again appears to have been part of the case here. And, uh, and I want to say know, is all, almost always applied to um, white attackers. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's people that that commit these kinds of crimes come from all manner of backgrounds. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. and and um, they they tend towards extreme ideologies as part yes, of that well, because I mean, people because they're targeted for this sort of thing, right? Well, what? Yeah, the question is why? What is it that led someone to to start you know worshiping ISIS or watching ISIS videos? You know, it, it's uh, sometimes it might be uh, anger at foreign policy. I don't know what, whether that was the case here. Um, but also a lot of the time it, ha- it happens to be people who are not completely uh, okay in the head for whatever that reason that may be, whatever has led them to that, whether it's, you know, um, some hereditary issue or whether it's something that has happened in their lives, you know, whatever. Um, you know, but, but either way, I mean, I think the way that this has been reported and, and as often is the case with acts of terrorism or alleged acts of terrorism, it tends to kind of obscure perspective. It, 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 we end up kind of not being able to put things into context, not being able to see things in the proper scale. You know, I mean, uh, this incident was, was terrible. Um, and, uh, you know, there are people in critical condition in the hospital and hopefully they are going to be okay and they're going to pull through. There's other people who are, who are injured less so. Um, but uh, at this point, no one has died. Um, it is a fact, unfortunately, in, in New Zealand society that uh, stabbings happen with regularity. Um, you know, there was a, an, a stabbing at a, at a party where a couple, I think a student or two was killed uh, just last month. There was another stabbing in June. A, a man in, um, in in Blenheim, I believe, he was he was uh, killed in June. There was another stabbing in Epsom in in March this year. So that's just this year. Yeah, and I think it's already you know over thirty people um, uh, have been killed in homicides in New Zealand this year. Every year it's about sixty something. It's about sixty seven or so. Um, it was less than that last year. It was sixty uh, something and the year before that. So. Uh, you know, these incidents, which were, I think, equally as horrible as this one, um, they were not reported in quite the same sort of breathless way that this is being done. You know, there wasn't a kind of TikTok giving you updates on here's here's everything we know about the stabbing that happened um, at this house party, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. And again, I've, I've said this online as well, but I think almost every mainstream outlet um, I, I think the spin-off is the only one i've seen that had a made an editorial decision not to publish the social media videos um, so people had been taking um phone video of the attack um almost every single mainstream media outlet was embedding those in their live feeds or putting an autoplay in their stories about it just really disgusting shit um, to be to be publishing, um, especially without warning, in a feed yeah. that just plays out of nowhere. Um, no, no care given for the victims. No, no care given for any even for the security response. Right, just as you mm. said, this kind of breathless sensationalism. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, look again. It's it's this is a terrible event, as all of these random killings are that that sometimes happen, and that that happen yearly. In, in New Zealand. The question is, why is this one being treated unlike the others? And of course, you know, you would say terrorism. Again, it remains to be seen what exactly 
the exact circumstances were that led this man to commit this murder in the same way that, that you know, I often think what circumstances lead anyone um, to, to carry out uh, a, a murder, um, whether it's a stabbing or, or something else. Um, it's, it's always, you know, there's, there's always a, a whole bunch of factors involved. But I think, um, you, you know, the, the reason why I'm just careful with, with how this is being treated is because when something is, a, is labeled a terrorist attack, um, it tends to uh, be deployed in a way that, that has very kind of invisible political purposes. It, it's meant to stir up fear, even though this attack as awful as it was, is really no worse than any number of violent crimes. Because it's a terrorist attack, it is now viewed as something uh, uh, extra horrible, extra objectionable that may require perhaps new powers, new forms of surveillance. When really, I mean, if anything, I think this incident showed that um, whatever exists out there now uh, did its job. You know, I mean, the, mm-hmm. the police stopped this guy, right? The police said as well. Him. That right. and the prime minister has said that there, there are current um, new legislation before the house that that would likely not have had any further effect. Um, and the police commissioner Andrew Costa has said um, this is a, an outlier. This is like a, an incredibly rare case. Right. Yeah, and and you know we should keep that in mind because there will be calls for some sort of um, you know, dangerous overstep to deal with this. Obviously, yeah, now uh, National is calling for um, people's people to be stripped of, of uh, New Zealand uh, citizenship over this kind of thing, right? Uh, which is, of course, that that's an old one that, that people have been trying to do. And, and, you know, of course, as with all these things, uh, it, it will. They will say that they're going to aim at a terrorist, and of course, when it comes down to it, it will be aimed at, at uh, people who are not terrorists. So it will yeah. be completely, we, we know uh, um, in a New Zealand context, it's these kind of powers are mostly aimed at Maori, uh, Muslim uh, people, and um, environmentalists. I think mm-hmm. as the other the other major group, um, while not yeah. being aimed at at um, you know people who might. Uh, be more of a threat. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think the other thing is there is a bit of a, a push by the media. I think we, we see uh, some of these horrible stories happen overseas. And so when it happens in New Zealand, um, which is very unimaginable for us, understandably, uh, there's this kind of push to um, to almost kind of, uh, have, have, you know, by the media to have something on the level of, of what's happening overseas and to create this kind of idea that New Zealand is just as besieged by terrorism um, uh, uh, that, that we see in other parts of the world uh, as those countries are. And, and, you know, that's a very dangerous way to look at it. I mean, look, New Zealand is, 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 very, is, is a very safe country, uh, comparatively speaking. Uh, even compared to what New Zealand was like 20 years ago, we have less crime, less violent crime. Obviously, year, year to year, things go up, things go down. But overall, the trend has has gone down over decades. So, you know, we're living, we live in a very safe country in a very safe period of that country's history. And I think sometimes we saw this with crime. The media breathlessly reports crime in New Zealand um, to the point where people have a overinflated sense of how uh, crime-ridden New Zealand is because they're simply seeing these headlines. Yeah. And so I, I worry now that, you know, with the Christchurch attack, which, which by the way, was far more horrific than this and really dangerous because the attacker had access to, to a gun, 
which thankfully this person was not able to get uh, and sort of had to resort to, to a knife. So he wasn't able to, to kill as many people as he might have been had he been able to get that kind of firearm. Um, but with the Christchurch attack and now this, I do worry that it, there will be a pattern of kind of, that I've seen in the UK and the United States and, and, and other countries in Canada, um, where te- terrorism is kind of turned into this thing that that uh, supposedly the country is is, is, is besieged by. Well, and I want to... Something must be done to stop it. When the reality is New Zealand has been very, very free of terrorism for it, despite our role overseas in, in some very questionable enterprises. I want to hark back as well to just a, maybe a month ago now um, where we had a woman return from Turkey with her children. Um, and we just had an Australian media and New Zealand media this reference to her as a jihadi bride. Um, mm. We had opposition parties um, taking the government to task over and how she was dangerous. This is someone who had essentially escaped ISIS, had gone to Turkey, had been judged not to be a security threat and wanted to go home and had two young Mm. children. And neither our media nor our opposition politicians were going to give up the chance to to make something of that um, and to try and make it seem like uh, some kind of uh, pandering to terrorism. So there's definitely this undercurrent here as well. And to, to see the media try and drum that up again um, and, and get the public on side with it because this attack has happened in a public space um, is really fr- frustrating to me, I yeah. think. Yeah. Well, you know, again, I would say the bottom line for me, uh, in looking at this incident, one, I think be careful with throwing around the word, the T word, uh, terrorism. Um, and let's look at the full context of what led this man to do what he did. And then secondly, tr- keep this in perspective because yes, it's a horrible, horrible event. Uh, too many like it happen in New Zealand every single year. Um, but we are not uh, being inundated with, um, with you know, a, a, a countless knife attacks by terrorists um, or even even people in general um, you know so let's let's keep this in perspective let's not lose our minds as people in the united states did tragically 20 years ago when they were attacked on september 11 and they ended up um, doing some very very reckless things one of which uh unfortunately new zealand was party to and and came to an end finally um uh in fact just uh, earlier this week as we record this which is the afghanistan war a foolish, uh, very destructive, uh, murderous uh, war that was uh, launched in an atmosphere of, of grief and rage and and um, and, and vengeance uh, in the early two thousand that lasted twenty years, cost the United States trillions of dollars. I don't know how much it cost New Zealand, um, but of course, our leaders would have said, "Well, that's you know." The cost is worth it if we get to stay in the uh, the club of important nations. Uh, you know, as I said, I don't know how much this guy, what what this the motivation was for this person. We know that often uh, attackers, whether ISIS inspired or not, uh, anger at foreign policy tends to to um, drive them. Again, I don't know what exactly the case was with this particular person, um, but uh, yeah, stunning to to see it end after so long. Um, because it was really this long-running war that we very quietly were involved in every step of the way. Yeah, and, and hopefully we get to put together a, a longer cast uh, about that at some point. 
um, and go into some of the the detail. You know, we have twenty years of detail to cover. Um, mm. Did you have any final thoughts before we we, we take a quick break um, and head into the interview with Luke? No, I think I think uh, that just about does it. I mean, I think there's there's tremendous irony that a, 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 an idiotic war and a senseless war that was launched um, because of I think a kind of rash uh, and disproportionate response to a horrific attack um, that 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 war should end just as we sort of um, fall back into some of those patterns, um, you know, without realizing it. I think there's some sort of irony. And I think if anything, it should make us maybe, you know, think about that time in the early 2000s and try very hard not to repeat those mistakes. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, let's, let's get off terrorism and see what's happening in, in Canada, where uh, I assume everything is going great. All right. Stick with us. We'll have a short musical interlude uh, and then we'll have Luke Savage on the cast to talk about the snap election in Canada. Welcome back, everyone. We're joined now by Luke Savage. How, How do we introduce you now, Luke? You've got your own podcast. Um, you're not just uh, Jacobin um, <laughs> contributor Jack- like you were Jacobin last staff time. writer, co-host of the Michael and Us podcast, the popular and widely acclaimed uh, uh, Michael and Us podcast. People are saying it's the best podcast ever. People are saying it. Check it out. <laughs> there you go. Um, and we'll have another pitch at the end um, to hear a little bit more about that. But the reason we have you here this morning um, in New Zealand is to talk about the snap Canadian election that has been going on. It's turning into a little bit of a disaster for Trudeau, it seems. Um, there are already a number of disasters occurring in Canada. Uh, and then um, the party has decided to call this election on top of that, uh, which has been an interesting move, to say the least. Well, yeah, actually, before we get into that, uh, let's maybe set up how we even got to there being an election right now and, and what's happened. Because when I was last paying attention to things in Canada, uh, Trudeau seemed to be flying high. Uh, I think there was generally approval of his handling of COVID. Like I think Canada had one of the, it wasn't one of the best in the world, but it was not like a US or Brazil style disaster. Like they were doing, they were actually giving pretty adequate financial support and stuff to, to people and to businesses. And things seem to be definitely going better than they were in the United States. Um, and similar and to so, the to Australia, they had some really strict state um, lockdown kind of uh, situations, which were making it even better um, than than it could have been. Yeah. So what happened in between last year when it seemed like Trudeau and the Liberals were were doing uh, okay to now? Well, it's it's a very interesting question, and and I would I would actually uh, I think the time frame can be contracted a little bit because really all of this has happened in the last three or four weeks. Um, mm-hmm. There was there were rumblings of an election early in the summer, um, in kind of late July and early August. Um, it seemed like this was an absolute certainty. All the all the parties were gearing up their campaigns. They were nominating candidates. It seemed like this was what the liberals were going to do. Uh, there were liberal sources quoted 
in various places um, saying things like, well, we're, we're in too deep now to pull the plug um, on the campaign. We have to call an election. Um, you know, the wheels are in motion, et cetera. And there was, you know, there were talk, there was talk that a fourth wave was going to happen, which it, of course we're not, it's now well underway. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's exactly in, in kind of the, the doom predictions about what could happen of a COVID election. That's, that's pretty much, um, exactly what's happened, even though, you know, vaccination rates are, are quite high and obviously the character of this wave will be different in some ways than the other ones for that, for that reason. Um, but uh, I mean, the liberals thought they had a sure thing here, and uh, it looked a few uh, weeks ago like that would be the case. The, the pundit consensus, and I think the consensus among liberal strategists as well, was that look, people might grumble if they call an election, um, but this is not—you know—these are not the conditions under which people are going to want a change of government. The liberals won a minority in 2019; they lost their 2015 majority. Um, and they also, you know, they lost the popular vote to the Tories in 2019, although won a, a number more seats because the Tory vote is quite inefficient. Um, and, you know, th this was just a, an act of, of unadulterated political opportunism. And if you look at kind of the tea leaves as they were three or four weeks ago, uh, it seemed like the calculus was pretty good. I mean, on paper, uh, you know, Bronco, you already alluded to it, but... Trudeau's approval, approval for Trudeau's handling of COVID was, um, you know, it was over over half of uh, the country were satisfied or very satisfied, according to one poll that I saw um, with the handling of the pandemic. Uh, vaccinations have really spiked throughout the summer. Liberal poll numbers themselves were kind of in the mid to high 30s. Um, pollsters often calculate in Canada, I don't know if they do this in New Zealand, but they'll calculate the probability of certain parties winning and then the probability of them winning a majority or a minority. And there was, I believe in some polls, an over 50% chance of a liberal majority. So uh, everything everything looked on paper like this was going to be a good election for the liberals. Um, they were going to say, we gave you a two-dose summer. They offered this very thin kind of pretense uh, or pretext for the election, which was Canadians deserve their say about how we finish the fight against COVID. They offered some pablum about, oh, Parliament is being obstructive, which is not, it's not true. I mean, in terms of um, the things that they're running on in this campaign, uh, they're all, I mean, all the big ticket items are thing they, things they could have easily passed in Parliament with support from the Bloc Québécois and NDP three or four weeks ago. They didn't do that. And so, uh, you know, we can get into the reasons for this, but but here we are. We're, you know, halfway through the campaign, roughly, and the Liberal poll numbers have tanked dramatically. Um, not just the individual numbers for the party uh, itself, but also all kinds of other metrics look really, really bad for them right now. So why is that? What, what has happened that has sent them uh, plummeting in the polls? So it's a very interesting question. I have to say... Um, I never thought this was a good idea. It always seemed like a, a very risky gamble, uh, something that would appear very irresponsible, even to people who weren't paying attention. Um, and I, I suspect um, there was a feeling after the Biden victory as well that like they were going to, you know, they were going to have a kind of similar, like there was, you know, this, these kinds of, you know, centrist liberalism is back, you know, we're, we're just going to cruise to victory. This is Canada after all, that sort of thing. Um, I, think, which completely, I think it's... Which completely misunderstands why Biden won. I mean, that, that's, not, that's not what happened, but yeah. Absolutely. 
So I think there are, I think there are a number of things. I mean, I think um, one is just that the liberal narrative is is a is a very poor one. I mean, just mm. calling an election so soon after the last one, when frankly people are very fatigued. I think people want to move on from having to think of they're sick. They're fatigued from COVID. I think the mm. last thing a lot of people wanted to do was think about an election. When was the election think, meant to be? Uh, I mean, it wouldn't have been for two years. I mean, it's a minority government, right? So, you know, you can have an election whenever, but I mean, by convention, it would have been, it would have been in two years. And it's a certain irony that if Trudeau loses and he's no longer PM in a few weeks, he could have been PM for two more years. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a remarkable face plant uh, in that respect. Um, so I think the first thing is that the liberal campaign narrative is not very compelling. I think Given the circumstances, calling an election, uh, you know, was not was not going to go down well, very well anyway. But I think calling an election and not really having any sort of, you know, reason for it that anybody believed um, under these circumstances, especially very poor. So that's one thing. Um, something else, by the way, that was motivating the election call was that there were rumblings of very deep fractures within the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party has had a leader for about a year named Aaron O'Toole, who um, I, I described uh, a few weeks ago in a Jacobin piece as incandescently uh, mediocre. Um, and I, I stand by that, but um, the Tories have run, um, I don't want to say dynamic because it's giving them too much credit, but they have triangulated in the campaign in a way that has been quite advantageous. So O'Toole mm. has come out, he's promised to give workers one seat on corporate boards, which is a completely, you know, it's a symbolic thing, but, um, mm. you know, uh, it's an example of this kind of, um, aesthetic co-option, at least, of, of sort of workerist language by the right. Uh, you know, O'Toole uh, won the leadership of the Tory party with the support of social conservatives, but he's really not giving those people anything. And social conservatism is pretty radioactive in Canada, even though there's, you know, it's hugely, it's overrepresented in the Tory base and is mm. often an albatross for them around election time. So O'Toole is really making himself seem non-threatening. He's promising to balance the budget in 10 years, which is really, uh, you know, a, a step away from the type of sort of rhetoric around spending and stuff like that. Um, the year from we've heard from Tories in the past, he's talking about a mental health action plan. You know, there's all Holy this shit. Kind of stuff. Is this Grant Robertson, uh, our finance <laughs> minister, running in Canada? <laughs> it, it's you know, it's o O'Toole is uh, O'Toole is uh, I think fundamentally a, a pretty mediocre uh, politician of the kind the Tory uh, party produces all the time. But he's 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 it's it's he's performed uh, he's performed better, um, and the Tories now have a, a, a narrow lead in most polls or in a few. Uh, a, you know, reasonably substantial lead. The NDP is also running a better campaign. And I think this is the, um, th this is another key to understanding what's going on. The NDP started out this election with much higher numbers than it traditionally starts elections. Um, I'm used to the NDP starting elections at maybe 14%. And if they're lucky, finishing at 17 or 18%. In this election, most polls, in the, in the polling averages, the NDP was kind of ranging between 19 and kind of 23%, which is very, very high. Uh, the NDP's only exceeded 20% in two elections since it was created in 1961. So mo in most of the polls now, if they're born, on, born out on election day, at least in terms of raw votes, would be a really good result for the NDP. Though with our system, it may not translate into a huge increase in, in seats. You never know. 
Mm. But so the 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 thing about what, what I'm coming to with all this is that Trudeau in 2015 had this aura, I mean, a fake one, but an aura that many people bought of kind of being a transformational leader. And, you know, uh, he's run a government that has been fairly scandal plagued. I mean, some of the things they're st- they've been, they sort of stepped in, um, putting aside his own uh, issues with, with shoe polish and, and other things. Um, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's not run the kind of government that I think people wanted, huge numbers of people wanted in 2015 when they voted liberal. 2015 was a wave election. It was an election where lots of people thought and were told that they were electing a transformational and left-wing government. That sounds so and familiar is, to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, throughout the English-speaking world, uh, and well, beyond the English-speaking world, but I feel like in, in Anglo-American democracies specifically, there is of late a real epidemic of this kind of stuff. And of course, there's mm. Macron as well. And, and you know, there's lots of examples of this recently. But um, yeah, we, so, we can so think I, of a couple. Uh, I think. <laughs> no, sure. So so just, just to just to just to finish, uh, just to finish my thought there, I mean, he Trudeau basically um, was able to win by getting the support from uh you know huge numbers of indigenous voters they were a big constituency for the liberals in 2015 huge Mm. numbers of younger voters huge numbers of what you might call small p progressive voters who i think are people with broadly social democratic values who more often than not vote liberal because um the liberal party is is very good at at um kind of uh courting them i think quite disingenuously but they but they do that uh very well, and they and they make every effort to turn what is really a three party system into effectively a two party system. Mm. Um, but but that hasn't worked thus far as well uh, this the time. It hasn't been as effective. So Trudeau has kind of lost this aura on which his whole brand was built um, through a series of kind of very unforced errors, really really ludicrous scandals implicating himself and and key uh, key figures around him, cabinet ministers, things like that. His his finance minister Bill Morneau had to resign in twenty twenty in this stupid charity scandal, which implicated uh, Trudeau as well. And then they call this election. And I think it has reminded people perhaps in a very, you know, obviously I don't want to be, be too, um, you know, I, I, this is generalizing quite a bit, but I think it has reminded people perhaps on uh, overtly and also in other quarters on a subconscious level that the liberal party is Canada's traditional ruling party. These are Canada's Mm. traditional elites and they're running a very, managerial kind of government in a society where the polls tell us for whatever it's worth um, and have told us since 2015 that huge numbers of people want, you know, unspecified uh, change. And the, uh, the numbers around that are now approaching uh, the levels they were in 2015 when, of course, the previous incumbent government was swept out of office. So that's where we're, <laughs> that's where we're at. I think those are the reasons for um, the sinking in the polls, which has been quite sharp. But it seems like um, a bunch of others have defected the liberals and, and gone over to the NDP. Um, and I'm wondering what are the chances that um, the, the liberals kind of hubris here, uh, the Icarus like uh, attempt to, to, to grab the, you know, the, the, the majority, whether that, that could end up in a, in a result where the liberals are weakened and then have to um, are forced to to uh, uh, give more concessions to an NDP that is the only thing 
that can keep them in government and a conservative one out. Is that is that a plausible scenario for this? Absolutely. Uh, and there's precedent for this as well. In 1968, Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, uh, you know, became prime minister and, um, you know, uh, you know, it was very popular. People still talk about Trudeau mania. I mean, it was this huge, it was very similar to the Kennedy phenomenon in the United States where, you know, TV was really becoming a thing in mass politics and Pierre Trudeau really benefited from that. He was pirouetting behind the queen. He was, you know, kissing babies. He was photogenic. He was eloquent. Um, he was thought of as very handsome, which I never quite understood, but, uh, but there we are. <laughs> Um, and in 1972, um, you know, having declared martial law um, briefly in in, um, in Quebec, at least over um, uh, over this uh, uh, crisis called the FLQ crisis, where um, you know there was a Quebec cabinet minister taken hostage by a, a fringe kind of militant group of Quebec separatists and things like that. The Trudeau government was very unpopular. Um, the the NDP, to its credit, actually. Uh, resisted the invocation of the War Measures Act and saw it saw it saw itself sink to its absolute nadir in public opinion for doing so. Although I think history has kind of mm. borne out that there there was no there was no insurrection. There were like three pe three crazy people with guns. <laughs> um, but uh, but then so in 1972 Trudeau lost his majority, and in the subsequent parliament, which was a minority parliament, uh, the NDP uh, made the Liberals do all kinds of. Stuff. And then, of course, got no credit for it. And the Liberals swept back into power with majority <laughs> two years later. And the leader of the NDP, David Lewis, uh, lost his own seat uh, because uh. there's uh, very there's very little justice in, in politics. But so well, there, there is there, there is precedent for this, um, although right now it's looking like the Tory. I mean, the polls are very fluid. So who knows what things mm -hmm. look like two weeks from now. But election world tomorrow, the Tories would probably win the most seats. And then, I mean, there is there is as far as I know, uh, I mean, there's no precedent in Canadian politics uh, for, well, I, sh I guess I shouldn't say that. I mean, there's never been a coalition government in Canada where um, there's like a party that uh, loses the popular vote and then forms a coalition with a third party. There, You know, the Liberals mm. lost the popular vote in 2019, but they had more seats. So having fewer yeah. seats and trying to still form a government, I think would be unprecedented in Canada. So there, and I'm not sure people would put up with it or, or so really it would be it. They would consider it like a, like a norm busting thing. If say the conservatives end up getting, let's say 40% of the vote and then uh, the NDP and, and, and liberals together make like 60% or something. And people would, people you think would be like, well, well hold on. This is, this is bullshit. Presumably looking at the American model and basing voting on how the American oh, system yes. works. Right. People very much think about our elections, and I'm sure it's this is true in New Zealand as well in a kind of mm. presidentialized fashion. So yeah. it's often said people are running for prime minister. And I know it sounds like a sort of pedanticy political science thing, but but fun, nobody run like political leaders in Canada are candidates like any other. They're running mm. for ridings, and they're and they're they you know they become prime minister if they can command a, a you know majority uh, in the House mm. of Commons and command the confidence of of the House. Um, no one mm. runs for prime minister. They're not, no one's yeah. directly elected. Um, but of course, that's how elections are often conceived of, and so that's how people think of them. So in two thousand and eight, for example, the, the Conservatives won. Uh, a, a minority, um, in some ways quite a quite a weak one, and um, the Liberals and the NDP actually did try to form a coalition a few weeks later because the Tories mm. uh, tabled this unbelievably right wing uh, 
budget or, or fiscal update. And uh, there was this attempt to topple them. And the Tories very successfully spun the whole thing as this is a coup against an elected government. They tried to do that here. They tried to do that here, but we had uh, well, enough discussion around MMP previously. Um, this is a, a couple of elections ago now um, that people weren't buying it, essentially. Although there are still people who say Jacinda stole the election. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that that might provide some hope because this it was an unprecedented thing as well in New Zealand for, uh, I mean, what did Labour get in that election? Like 36, 37? Yeah, and they uh, they just teamed up with New Zealand First and, and the Greens. And yeah, and, and people were like, how, how dare they use the rules of the electoral system that we have to, <laughs> to form a coalition? Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, people have accepted. So maybe, who knows, maybe uh, the Liberal government will be able to do the same. But what's interesting, I mean, it, it feels like there's a lesson in what you're saying about the previous time that they did this, that they teamed up. Um, which is that, and, and we've seen this in New Zealand uh, system as well many times, that the minor party uh, ends up being the loser uh, in, in the sort of like, medium to long term, you might say, from uh, these partnerships, which to me, the lesson is if you're a minor party, you have leverage, you're able to get concessions um, and, and join the government. Yeah, I mean, go for broke, because if, the, if you do get your stuff to uh to be passed you're not gonna get any credit and you'll probably be absolutely slaughtered in the election so you may as well just use the opportunity you have instead of being cautious and going no 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 no, we want to we want to be re-elected it's not going to happen well i i uh yeah i i I felt very differently about this in 2008 than i do now i was a big supporter of the ndp liberal coalition i mean i think that you know having no having since had the chance to talk to Figures in the NDP who were who were part of orchestrating it. I mean, I, I think what they were trying to do was very well intentioned. I think a lot of them now feel it was a mistake. I think one thing that kind of taught us that was what happened with the Liberal Democrats in Britain, where they signed up to be part of this Tory government. And essentially, instead of using the leverage they might have had as a, you know, um, you know, in some kind of confidence and supply arrangement um, in the House of Commons, you know, not joining the government exerting pressure from without and being able to pull the trigger and force an election. I mean, they could have done that. Instead, they joined the government and there were Lib Dem cabinet ministers who had to sign off on all of the cabinet policy. And in in the case of Britain between 2010 and 2015, that meant deep, deep cuts, um, which is what the liberal, it meant betraying their explicit promise to the National Union of Students that they would never vote to raise tuition fees and they voted to triple tuition fees. It completely they were completely obliterated in 2015 um, and they've never recovered. Um, and so I think that uh, in, in Westminster systems anyway, it's very dangerous for minor parties to actually sign up and join governments. If the NDP is in a position to extract concessions from the liberals after the election, I hope that there's no talk of a coalition government. Unless something changes, uh, you know, I will be vocally opposed to any any arrangement like that i think it would be much better to say you know trudeau can remain pm if he does x y and z but we're not joining him in government we're just seeing that happen in scotland at the moment with the scottish greens um uh uh planning to join a coalition um similar to what the greens did here um just over the last couple of elections um getting seats uh, or cabinet positions um in exchange for some kind of confidence and supply or 
um, something similar. And we've had multiple situations in New Zealand where minor parties, going all the way back to the 90s, um, go in for one term and fully drop out of parliament the next. So New Zealand First has done that twice now. The Alliance ceased to be a party. Um, the Greens have seen their vote drop a couple of times. ACT dropped out of parliament. Maori, except for Maori one seat. Party, Maori Party. Got an electoral... Uh, I had no idea there were so many parties in, in New Zealand. This is incredible. Well, we, we have a... Well, it's, it's, it's a proportional Some of these system, don't exist anymore. So, no, they don't. <laughs> right. yeah. But, I mean, we, we have a system that allows for many different right. parties, which which I would argue is better. But this... Well, the, the old thing against this idea was that, well, you, if you do that, then governments become unstable and um, you, know, you have to do all these coalitions. That means like things will fall apart. But actually, the New Zealand, at least in New Zealand, uh, I know this isn't the case in every place, but in New Zealand, it hasn't really gone that way. We've uh, we've had this is really the, the first um, uh, uh, majority government um, ever under the MMP system. But um, before then, it's not like it's not like uh, governments were falling apart uh willy-nilly you know things were going well they weren't they weren't going well from my point of view in terms of like the actual needs of people being met but in terms of just the stability of these institutions they they were taking on going back you know this thing about the NDP um kind of suffering a similar fate in in the 70s why and just seeing you know in the UK New Zealand and Canada um such a, a history of this result um, why do you think they keep doing it? Well, so I, to, to be clear in, in the seventies, the NDP didn't join the liberals in government. Um, I mean, I, so I guess the lesson maybe there is that, uh, mm. just, just, you know, the, the liberals get to co-opt, you know, whatever the NDP, uh, offers, you know, regardless of whether they join them in government or not. Um, I don't know. Working um, with a major party, right. Is, is always going to be like have a, a major risk of this. It's always going to be fraught. Now, I should say that during COVID, the NDP has actually managed to push the liberals on all kinds of things and um, seems to have anyway gotten a lot of credit. I mean, another thing I forgot to mention is that in addition to the NDP's poll numbers being really good, the numbers for Jagmeet Singh, the leader, are astonishingly high. He's got much higher approval than um, you know, O'Toole or Orchardo, both of whom are net negative, and he's, you know, very net positive, like double digit net positive. Pollsters go through these kind of like, you know, uh, you know, ranking leaders in terms of like their their perceived values. So, you know, Singh does really well on all these things like, you know, understands the issues affecting my family, means what he says, you know, has a hidden agenda, he gets very low, whereas the others get very high, like <laughs> all those, all those, all those kind of things. And, you know, so you know, he he's seen as somebody who's, uh, you know, I mean, he's, he's very well liked. And I think, you know, more even more so than uh, last time in 2019, his numbers went up pretty high and it didn't really translate in terms of seats. The NDP um, lost a number of seats in the last election. Um, but, you know, the, the poll numbers for the NDP currently look like it's headed to a pretty good result, although, you know, always the devil is the, in the final week of a campaign because that's when the liberals will deploy their strategic voting argument and in downtown Toronto, especially where I live, you can really see the effects of that. You know, I've gone door to door in past elections in Toronto and um, you meet all kinds of people who are our natural NDP voters and they only decide how they vote based on uh, a, a glance at the polls. And if the Tories are too high, they'll, they'll just vote, they'll just vote liberal.
Yeah, that was one of the strange things I found about Canada, which is that even though you have a different system to the United States, it's as if people just think that the Canadian and U.S. political systems are the same, and then they kind of vote. They vote like United States Americans. It's very, very odd. That's that's right. It's and it's yeah. It's deeply frustrating. I mean, a big part of it. It's partly a legacy. I mean, it's it's always been an issue for the NDP. It's an issue for third parties under you know any under any kind of first past the post system. But it's you know especially ingrained from the Harper era, uh, which kind of spanned two thousand six to twenty fifteen, where there was this uh, you know right wing government in Canada, and there was a whole industry around strategic voting, so called that popped up during that time. There were whole organizations that were dedicated to like telling people like, if you live in such and such a place, this is how you vote to stop the conservatives. And it just so happens that that was almost always voting liberal and in play and in examples where these organizations would tell people to vote NDP, people just vote voted liberal anyway, because people vote in people vote in waves, they don't differentiate, right? Awareness of you know, a lot of people don't na- know the name of the riding they live in. They get they get their information about which polling station they go to. They look at the polls. They read the news a little bit before election day, and then they go and vote. And so, mm. um, you know, the whole strategic voting thing, which bills itself as a way to keep right wing governments out of power, I think, is ultimately very self defeating. And so far in this campaign, that argument hasn't seemed to really catch on because of how mm. high the NDP numbers are. The NDP has appeared to have upward momentum while the Liberals have had downward momentum. If things stall now and kind of the numbers stabilize, um, we could be in for a fairly typical election, maybe an increase of seats for the NDP somewhat, but not anything big. If the direction of travel continues as it is, then a week from now we're going to be in a situation where the NDP and the Liberals are fairly close, and that's uh, that happened in 2011, and the and the collapse of the Liberal vote was instantaneous, which I think is uh, tells you that so that a lot of people in Canada basically look at polls to determine how they vote, and that huge numbers of people who vote for the Liberal Party, particularly in places like Vancouver and Toronto, um, are essentially kind of social democratically inclined voters who um, are are kind of arm twisted into into voting for the liberals uh, in in more election, you know, in nine elections out of 10 or whatever. Time to fake some polls then, I guess. <laughs> you got to love the polling industry, such a useful uh, industry that, that, that only does good for the world. Um, so let me ask you if the conservatives win. What does that actually mean? Because the the liberals, of course, one of the things that people hate about them, as they do with every one of these centrist uh, kind of left leaning parties in the in the modern Western world, is that they talk a big game and then they get in and they don't do anything, and or, or in fact they do things that are uh, along the lines of what the uh, conservative government would have done anyway. Um, I know that 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 is the case with the liberals to an extent. So what does it actually mean if the conservatives win? Would things end up being all that much worse uh, than they would be than they would have been under a liberal under the sort of feckless liberal government that that Trudeau has been running, uh, or is a kind of um, you know aside from a few things here and there, pretty interchangeable stuff. Well, it's it's difficult to say. I mean, a lot of it would depend on whether the Tories won a minority or a majority. If they win a minority, there's actually a lot of, I mean, most 
most of the, well, most or all of the sort of red meaty stuff that, that, you know, hardcore Tory voters and activists want. I mean, they're not going to get that through parliament, um, you know, with a, with a minority. Um, if they want a majority, uh, you know, they could potentially do that kind of stuff. Although what we saw under the Harper era is that they were very, uh, or during the Harper era is that they were very cautious and incremental about that stuff. Harper, who himself came from the socially conservative right, was very um, attuned to the fact that uh, if they, you know, for example, tried to outlaw same-sex marriage or something, uh, it would not be popular. And so, you know, mm. once in a while, he would kind of throw a bone to those people. He would hold like a symbolic vote on something. And it, w- it would be like, like for same-sex marriage, for example, in 2006, they held a vote on whether to raise the, to, to, bring back the question to op- reopen the debate and Harper raised, did that knowing that they would not uh, not you know win the vote um, I mean there was a lot of bad stuff that they did do after they got a majority but even then they did not move as quickly as uh, I think a lot of us expected them to do uh, but Aaron O'Toole is a really unknown commodity partly you know he ran by courting the right wing of the Tory party and he beat this guy, Peter McKay, who's another Harper era cabinet minister who ran as a sort of open Tory moderate. He ran on being pro-choice and, you know, you know, believing in climate change and things like that. Thing is, O'Toole is kind of flipped to a lot of those same things. You know, he's he's running as a Tory moderate. And so the if if the Tories did win um, and they won any kind of mandate i mean it'll be very what they're what they have actually been given a mandate to do and what they will feel uh primed or comfortable to do i think is very ambiguous three weeks ago nobody thought that aaron o'toole had a shot at being prime minister i still think he's got a only a negligible shot i have to say um i think you know the i think that the the tories may win slightly more seats or slightly fewer seats i mean you know who two, two weeks now i could have egg on my face. I don't know. But um, O'Toole is an unknown commodity and he's running a very triangulating campaign that I think makes it very difficult to predict um, what uh, what he what he could do in, in terms of, you know, fiscal policy and things like that. I I don't know how different it would be than a lot of the things the liberals were uh, were planning to the liberals have promised uh, billions in new spending uh, during the campaign because they're afraid of NDP the uh, NDP eating their eating into their voters on the left. But um, yeah, whether they're planning to do any of that stuff, I have no idea. They ran on a, uh, you know, not particularly ambitious agenda with some good things on it in 2015 and didn't do a lot of those things despite having a mandate to do them. So uh, I think, you know, uh, in, in a kind of certain kind of inverse way, the same thing applies to the, the Tory party uh, as well. And what does this election mean for the Liberals, whether they, they, they scrape through, but they have a bit of a scare, or whether they, they lose even? What does that mean? It, it seems like both of those outcomes are not great for the party going forward. It's, it's catastrophic either way. And if they, uh, if they lose the election, it's obviously catastrophic, a, a, an unnecessary self-inflicted wound born out of like... I mean, patrician entitlement and political opportunism. I mean, I mean, seriously, 
if they win, I mean, I think a hilarious outcome. You, you can imagine. I'm already imagining Trudeau giving a sort of Marco Rubio like speech. You know, this thing where Marco Rubio would sort of come forth in like a Republican primary, and then he'd give a speech <laughs> where he'd be like, "They said it could never happen, but today we defied the." You know, I can imagine Trudeau sort of losing 30 seats and then giving an, you know, giving a speech like that and sort of trying to declare victory. Um, you know. <laughs> A cross between Pete Buttigieg and 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 Marco Rubio, perhaps. Actually, it's just occurring for me to me that for the first time that those two have a kind of similar energy in some ways. That's a very um, good point. Yeah, yeah. Pete Pete would like reach for a drink bottle in the middle of a speech, uh, embarrassingly. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it could it could uh, it could happen yet. Uh, the Pete, Pete Buttigieg gives a response to like uh, you know the Donald Trump's next State of the Union or something. Um, it's could it, it could it could happen awkwardly awkwardly sips from uh well it wouldn't just be plain water for him it would probably be some weird like health drink with electrolytes in it or it would something be kombucha, knowing yeah, him it would be something yeah yeah, yeah kombucha um, but no the the liberals will uh the liberals will face a crisis and trudeau will be uh i mean this is already damaged uh, 2019 was very damaging to his reputation i hate to use the word brand but he is a brand so i think it's, it's that's accurate. all he has <laughs> that's all he has it would be it would be it would be catastrophic uh losing any losing any seats to be honest um would be mm. would be disastrous and you know the the um there would probably be some uh demands that he go uh, the liberal party has actually slightly changed its um branding mid-campaign uh, at the start of the campaign, there was tons of just stuff about Trudeau. They they did this really weird launch video uh, that looks like a sort of a lip promo for the Olympics sponsored by Roots or something with Trudeau and these vistas of trees and rivers. And, you know, it looks really much, it really does look much more like, you know, a, a you know, Nike commercial or a Roots commercial than a, a political ad. But they they recently started talking about Trudeau's team and this kind of stuff, like, there's been a recognition that Trudeau is actually dragging down, like the liberal brand is quite anemic and Trudeau is, is dragging it down. So um, there may be an attempt to replace him as prime minister. I wouldn't be surprised if the liberal party, if they are able to hold on to power, they replace him. The favorite would almost certainly be Christia Freeland, the former um, Reuters journalist, I guess, somebody who has uh, a sort of had a had some kind of profile in the United States. You know, she'd been on Bill Maher and things like that a few times. It's not super well known, but anyone that achieves any success in the United States, uh, as my own career to a lesser degree attests to, um, you know, that's something that that carries a lot of currency in in Canada. And um, for that reason, Freeland has for some time been entertained as a, a possible uh, prime minister, possible liberal leader. She's a senior cabinet minister at the moment. Um, and uh, she's, she was, was foreign minister and has been finance minister since the fall of 2020 for about a year. She's got a high profile. She's had lots of glossy magazine profiles in, in, mm. in the types of magazines that kind of rich people read. Um, I have my doubts about whether she'd be successful, but that's kind of the, I think she's the, the heir apparent. And you can imagine the logic, you know, if the liberals were to hold on to power, uh, but but have lost seats, they might think, well, we can get rid of Trudeau and just kind of restart the engine by putting someone else in there, which is, of course, a luxury the Democrats don't have with Joe Biden, really. Um, 
So, so, uh, so we'll see, uh, you know, perhaps we can, uh, check in again in, in three or four weeks when, when, uh, the dust has settled. It's, it's certainly been a very interesting campaign and it's anything but the incredibly sleepy and non-substantive campaign that the liberals, uh, expected. They've, they've really blown it. Well, you know, it kind of reminds me of David Cameron calling uh, Brexit back in uh, in 2016, the, the Brexit vote, because it's one of these yes. completely unnecessary, um, uh, uh, like, self-inflicted wounds. Same as uh, Theresa May calling that election because they thought they were going to run roughshod over, over Corbyn's labor, and then they ended up... I mean, she ended up losing. I'm prime minister. I'm actually. I've been wondering whether or not there was, there is something else going on where Trudeau has called this as a way to see off um, pressure within the Liberal Party, similar mm-hmm. to what Cameron and May had to do, um, as much as anything else. I, I'm not, I mean, I do think there are a lot of, uh, I think both of those, I think the May and Cameron examples are good analogies. I think Trudeau has faced very little pressure from within the Liberal Party because the party has built its entire, I mean, the Liberal Party was was reduced for the first time in, I mean, I mean, I mean, the first time ever, it was reduced to third party status in 2011, mm-hmm. had 34 seats or something like that, completely wiped out. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it, it came roaring back solely on this, the strength of this, I mean, initially very tenuous Trudeau was not taken seriously and rightly so, um, kind of liberal brand. And for a number of reasons, uh, the liberal party became, it kind of seized the mantle as like, you know, we're the, we're the, you're, we're your choice for change or whatever. And it has, uh, made itself completely inextricable from, this figure and and the this kind of um type of cipher politics that he represents and of course when the symbolic uh kind of uh quality of a figure like this decreases when the symbolic sort of valence and currency of something like this devalues uh and you've built your entire party brand around it you're in real trouble and i think that's you know a big part of what's happening right now well, you know, we've been we've been uh, watching for many years uh, the 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 slow downfall of the Trudeau persona, uh, and yeah, who who knows? This could be this could be the culmination. Uh, and then what comes after that? I guess uh, you know, this is one of these things that, that people are going to have to watch the Canadian uh, politics for. Um, but we we thank you for coming on and giving us a little fill in on what's been happening over in in, in my former home uh uh you know i clearly clearly me leaving is what uh, precipitated the, <laughs> the downfall of uh of liberal politics in canada um but uh, no again thank you thank you so much for coming in and letting us know what's been going on and and uh yeah fascinating to see what's going to happen in, in a little bit it's always a pleasure guys happy to come back anytime where awesome. can people find your work you mentioned um a couple of uh things you worked on um but let's let's see you out with that yeah, thanks. Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Luke W. Savage. Uh, you can find my work at, at Jacobin um, and, and elsewhere as well, but uh, the majority of it at Jacobin. Um, I, uh, I should be out next week in next week's issue of The New Statesman with a piece on um, the Canadian election. People want to read more. Um, I think that should be out next week. Um, I do have a book that is coming out soon. 
I cannot tell you what it's called contractually. <laughs> I cannot tell you when it is coming out, but it should be available for pre-order sometime in the next four to eight weeks. And you can find that on my Twitter. Can you tell it's us what's be very about? exciting. It's a defense of animal cruelty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> contrarian, but you might you might be persuaded. <laughs> it's a it's a tribute to Justin Trudeau and the brand of moderate, <laughs> sensible, enlightened politics that he represents. They finally the, the, got to you, Luke. They got to you. <laughs> yeah, sorry guys. The they drove a dump truck full of money to, up to my house. <laughs> I'm not made of stone. Um <laughs> I, I well, what I can tell you is that it's a book that's going to bring together a lot of the themes I've been developing in my work, some of which we discussed today, um, themes I've developed over the uh, over the past few years, um, uh, kind of uh, left left critique of liberalism. Uh, there's going to be a lot about individual liberal figures. Um, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking in uh, possibly too granular a way about figures like Pete Buttigieg, Beto O'Rourke. I spent a lot of time reading these guys and their insufferable books, Justin Trudeau as well. Um, you know, the, the virtuoso of cypher politics himself, Barack Obama. Um, and so there's, there's um, you know, there's gonna be a lot of that kind of stuff, uh, some media criticism as well, um, some stuff on kind of uh, politics under, under late capitalism and kind of, uh, you know, postmodern mass politics, if you want, um, all, all kinds of stuff. I'm, I'm very pleased with when I kind of set out to put it together, I was not uh, expecting to put together a real book so much as sort of an arbitrary collection of essays. And I think hopefully anyway, it should fall more into the real book category. So there'll be more on that on my, uh, on my Twitter, uh, soon. Check it out. Wonderful. And also Michael and us, uh, a great podcast that combines political analysis with um, very entertaining uh, uh, pop culture uh, crossovers. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a very broad uh, description, but it's it's well worth checking out. Finally, I think getting the, the recognition, it's, it's long deserved that, that podcast. Um, okay. Well, uh, thank you. And, and of course, uh, uh, one of 200 listeners, uh, if you like what you heard here, Tell your friends, share, give some money to our Patreon so we can uh, pay people to write articles for us. Uh, you know, this is this is how a media empire is made. So we need all of you to, to contribute what you can, even in these terrible times. Um, and uh, and we will see you guys uh, uh, next week uh, with some more content. And, and until then, enjoy the show and and you know keep uh, keep enduring through this lockdown. And, and hopefully we'll. Get uh, on the other side of it with our sanity intact. Um, so, good, goodbye from all of us here. The relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams, is a lie aspirational. Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines. Dying embers of your dreams is a lie aspirational. Will you die keeping your glass half full?